Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Hey, welcome back, boys and girls. Grab your carpet squares, your graham crackers, your Lunchables, and your juice boxes because we got a really good program for you today. We're going to uh, finish up religious freedom. Um, last week, we really laid the groundwork uh, historically for religious freedom. And today we're going to really kind of look at where the rubber meets the road in Supreme Court cases. But as always, across from me in history, politics, and beer is Mr. Jeffrey Hudson. And as always, Mr. Jeffrey Hudson brings along a beer for history, politics, and beer. So Mr. Hudson, what did you bring us this time? I bought us a Yingling Golden Pilsner. Uh, and, you know, pils- we've had Pilsners we've on had the Pilsners. show before. Yeah, and they tend to be Light, uh, light tasting, not real hoppy, a little lower alcohol, a good summer beer. It is. And this is a good beer to have when you're having people over, right? Yeah. You're not going to offend anybody. It's, it has enough flavor. It's the yingling. It's, it's not expensive. <laughs> that makes it another good <laughs> beer to is. have when, when people aren't, uh, <laughs> you know, when people are over. But, uh, yeah, it's good. And, and, you know, it's so light. It's, well, and basically, I think Miller Lite's a pilster, technically. And uh, it's actually a good meal in the summer because of barbecues and stuff, too. I love a you barbecue. Can, yeah, you can, you can drink it when you're sitting there having your burger or, or you right. know, even if you're sitting down with some pizzas or whatever. And you don't feel, like, uh, you know, stuffed. Right. I mean, if you have a stout or uh, – even a heavy IPA with a lot of alcohol. That's a winter beer, man. Yeah. It's like you're getting cold. You take your jacket off. You're going into the pub. Yeah. You get warmed up because the alcohol is going to go right. through your system. But Pilsner's okay. You like it? I okay. like it. I'm going right. to drink a few. Uh, I already cracked one open. Matter of fact, I think I got about half that pint done already. All right. So uh, we last, like I said, last week we really covered a lot of ground um, doing the background. And we really came – and as I was editing the podcast uh, and we really made this push – that our government is secular, that though we may be a nation of Christians, this isn't a Christian government, right? Right, right. And I, I was jotting some things down for you, Jeff, um, trying to think for myself and also think for the listeners out there. And there's there's some things out there that just seem to contradict what we're talking about. And I have three things written here as I was editing, and I'm just going to shoot them off to you one at a time. Um the first one, the president's oath of office. Uh, I just saw Donald Trump very, not very recently, but a year or so ago, uh, take the oath of office. I watch it every four years, and God is referenced every single time, and yet you're telling me it's secular, but here is my president taking the executive oath, and we're referencing God. Right, and uh, you know, at the very end of the oath, uh, the president says, so help help me God. So help me God. Right. And but the and pre- I'm led to believe that the oath is in the Constitution. And, and the oath is in the Constitution. It's in Article 2 of the Constitution. But the phrase, so help me God, is not in the Constitution. Uh, you can go look there and, uh, you know, the president uh, promises to preserve and protect, defend the Constitution of the United States. But there is no so, so help me God. Like so many other things, uh, uh, presidents copied what the first president, George Washington, did. And when he was inaugurated, he added 
the So Help Me God, and since then it's been tradition Okay, also. Now, a lot of times, two people say, well, doesn't the president take the oath on the Bible? And the majority of presidents have, but there's no requirement in the Constitution. We talked about no religious test right. for office. Uh, the And presidents, uh, Glo- Grover Cleveland is one. He was sworn in on a copy of the Constitution. Well, I didn't know that. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. so again, that's people could just sort of assume this, but it's not in the original document. And the practice of swearing with your hand on the Bible is tradition, not something that's mandated by the Constitution. Hmm. And something else you don't know about uh, Grover. Um, Grover later on uh, became a Muppet. And <laughs> 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 a career that probably most of your childhood. All right. All right. All right. Uh, the, the second one, you and I are both. Wait, wait, we said Pilsner's had low alcohol. Uh. <laughs> All right. So the the second one I've written down, and this is probably, this should have been my first one, actually, because you and I are both teachers. Uh, we both stand every morning and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Well, I don't now because I'm retired, so I'm yeah. sleeping when you guys do so that. So you don't say – you don't. that's not the first thing you I do. I don't get, pop up out of bed and do it. I would have but. thought all retired teachers do that. Okay. But. Anyway, but Pledge of Allegiance, we all say it in the morning. Uh, if you're in public schools, you don't have to say it. We'll talk about that later on. Right. But it is certainly part of an American tradition and certainly under God is there. And this is an endorsement of religion, is it not? Well, except the pledge was created in, in 1892 by a minister named Francis Bellamy. Exactly. And uh, his pledge did not contain the phrase, one nation under God. The phrase that he wrote was, one nation indivisible. Under God. No. <laughs> under God was not in there. And uh, it, it's interesting because during World War II, it became common practice to recite the pledge as, as we did for yeah. so many years in the morning. And, and you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses objected to that. They, they don't believe in um, uh, worship, paying reverence to any symbols. I think it's probably taken the idea of no graven image right. uh, to its extreme. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, of course, during World War II think, well, heck, that's unpatriotic. But uh, in West West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, uh, the majority of the Supreme Court said the free speech clause of the First Amendment prohibits public schools from forcing students to salute the American flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance. So it's actually a freedom of religion allowed the Jehovah's Witnesses students not to be forced to say that, even though the phrase under God wasn't in it. But in So ni- where does under God come from? In 1954... President Dwight Eisenhower signed a bill passed by Congress that put the words under God uh, in, the, in the pledge, and they replaced uh, the phrase one nation indivisible. Okay. Well, so Eisenhower then put so, God but, in. But it's not in the original. It's, it's, it, it's from the 50s. Okay. And Communism, that, I'm assuming, plays a role in this. Right. And God, we're you know in a global Cold War against godless communism, and we wanted to distinguish ourselves— and that phrase was added in the 50s. Okay. So the court's okay with the pledge. It's not an endorsement of religion. No. Okay. And, and uh, yeah, it wasn't even in there for 50 years, 60 years. Uh, the, the, the phrase under God wasn't even in the pledge. All right. Last one. The third one I wrote down during the editing process is um, I don't carry much of this anymore, but on my money, it says, in God we trust um, again, clearly an endorsement of religion, countering what we said last week, that we are a secular nation. 
And that is the official motto of the United States. But again, not anything, not originally. That was passed in 1956 by Dwight Eisenhower, signed into law by Dwight again during the height of the Cold War. And probably as a a unifying, a point of rallying against godless communism. And uh, it wasn't printed on any American currency until 1957. Again, I think I think there's this idea that you know, oh well, we've always been a Christian nation. We're getting away from that, and right, now we're right, secular. Right. And there probably are more secular people as a percentage of the population. But the government, you know, our money didn't say in God we trust. We weren't pledging to you know what what they're looking back to these people who think this way is to the 50s. That's what they're looking back to as sort of the golden age, not to the founding and the Constitution. I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, there's a treaty a lot of people don't know about. It's called the Treaty of Tripoli. And, uh, you know, uh, there's some bad behavior in the Middle East for a long time. How about give us a year for this? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I got This is Jeffersonian. This uh, is Jefferson. Well, this is actually during the Adams administration. Okay. And uh, it, it was started to be negotiated in the second term of the Washington so uh, administration. So that would have been in seventeen ninety, the late seventeen nineties, and eventually, you know, come to fruition during Adams' um, administration. But the the uh, people in Tripoli and what they called the uh, the barbar Barbary states, right. the Barbary pirates, they used to sail out and grab American seamen and other, and then hold them for hostage, steal the cargoes and stuff like that. So. We wanted to stop that. We had to pay a ransom. Basically, we had to pay a ransom, and it was you know it was expensive, and people, of course, are willing to pay a lot to get their loved ones back. So this treaty of Tripoli was negotiated, and and the treaties, uh, as the Constitution provides, they have to be approved by Congress. But when we were negotiating the, this treaty, we wanted to make sure uh, that the people, the Muslims, we were negotiating the treaty with didn't think we wanted any kind of religious war. We weren't opposed to them for any religious reason. And Article 11 of this treaty reads as follows. As the government of the United States of America is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion, and it has in itself no character of enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, that's Muslims, uh, and as the states never entered into any war of act of hostility against any Mohammedan, again, that means Muslim nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arriving from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. So we're trying to reassure, and of course, this has a lot of resonance nowadays Absolutely. for, for uh, uh, attitudes toward Muslim. We're trying to reassure them that you know we we weren't on any kind of crusade against the muslims we didn't uh, and we could have a peaceful resolution to the problem of uh of people sailing out from tripoli and other places and and raiding our shipping uh but it's interesting and it says as the government of the united states of america is not in any sense founded on the christian religion and this is written this is penned by men who are of obviously of the founding generation? Well, right, and there this were isn't, this, this isn't generations later writing this. No, this there were a lot of framers in the Senate. Right, there were a lot of people who framed the Constitution. This was non-controversial, and John Adams, who himself is a fairly religious person, if you read about 
his his life. He signed it. This wasn't objectionable in any sense. So I think when you look at what the framers thought, again, it becomes very, very clear. It's not that they were hostile to the Christian religion. It's just that the United States isn't founded on that. Right. And they would have, as we talked last week, they had a long history of seeing religious conflict and knew what that could do to nations. And that's what they were trying to avoid. They were trying to ensure religious freedom and avoid, avoid religious conflict. And they understood a secular nation was part of that. Awesome. All right. So like I said, a couple of questions I had for Dr. Hudson there. Uh, we want to jump in here and start hitting where the rubber meets the road with religious freedom. Remember, this is all predicated on from last week, what I called the gay cake case. Um, and this was, does a baker have to produce a cake for a gay couple? Um, is this religious freedom protected? And this is not a an easy answer. And both sides of this, um, if you are for or against this, uh, aren't going to probably be completely happy with our podcast because there's a lot of moving parts to this, a lot of nuances. Um, but I think we probably should start um, with the I with where am I? Lemon versus Kurtzman would probably be where I would start because that's going to give us the lemon test. And what you need to know about the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court is the last domino to fall to decide whether something is constitutional or not, an action from the government. Um, is it as a law of the government? Is an action of the government constitutional? And when the Supreme Court makes a decision, it wants to make a decision in a way that allows lower courts in the future to follow precedent. So they try to come up with what we call tests that lower courts will be able to use. It's one of the problems we talked about earlier in one of our podcasts about gerrymandering, that it's almost not impossible, but it's really hard for the court to come up with a gerrymandering test. So it's really hard for the court to decide anything. With the First Amendment and a religion, Lemon versus Kurtzman, 1970, um, Pennsylvania allowed local governments to use money to fund religious-based lessons, mostly Catholic. Um, and in this decision, we get something called the Lemon Test, which is a three-pronged test that lower courts can now use to determine whether um, a law or action is constitutional. The first part says is purpose. The law must have a secular purpose. Secular simply means non-religious. The second is effect. The primary effect must not help or hinder a religion. And the last one is entanglement. No excessive government entanglement uh, should exist. And if you pass all three of those, um, you can be, it can be declared constitutional. If you fail in any one of those three, a law should be declared unconstitutional. All right. And and. And in the case of Lemon versus uh, Kurtzman, the aid to parochial schools was ruled unconstitutional, I believe, and that's right. Excessive, probably page. excessive government entanglement yeah. could also have been uh, primary. It could have been Advanced, in probably any yeah, one of those three, right? And and so that's the test that we have. And what was that? Was in nineteen seventy one or something? Yeah, like I bet nineteen seventy. But the, yeah. the case could have came in nineteen seventy, then decided in nineteen seventy one. So that is, now there's lots of other tests. There's a coercion test. There's an endorsement test. Um, the Supreme Court loves tests, but if you're going to talk about religious freedom, you really need to talk about Lemon versus Kurtzman 1970. Now, the bump from there, I think we probably should go 
um, the next one for a foundation for us is going to be the Employment Division Department of Human Resources versus Oregon. Do you want to go there next or you want to backtrack a little bit and hit some of the older cases? Yeah, why don't we hit Engel versus Vitali? Okay. And 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 then why don't we have our listeners uh, try to apply the uh, lemon test before we do? Well, there you go. I'll tell you so, what, there's so, a self-quiz going on. Yeah, there. so uh, you guys listening – you guys decide uh, if if this particular practice that was going on in New York in 1962 in 1962 uh, violated any th- uh, of these three parts. Uh, was there a, a secular purpose being served? Was the principle of primary effect to advance religion? Was there excessive entanglement of the government with religion? So in 1962, uh, New York State required. The regents of New York State right. required yes. a, a little prayer at the start of the Non-denominational school state-read, I mean state-written. So this was not a prayer that schools were coming up with. This, the regents came up with this prayer, non-denominational, that was going to be read to all students. Okay. And included a reference to God. Absolutely, right? according to a reference to God. But they thought they were you know, covering bases by being non-denominational. Right. It could, even if there's a lot of Jewish people in New York, they thought that was okay because right. God's you know fine in the Jewish faith. But – uh, people objected to that. So what what do you think? Which one of those would um, having kids at school and a teacher uh, leading a prayer in front of them and, and encouraging all the kids to say the prayer with them, uh, would that violate any part of it? Even though the lemon test didn't exist at that right. point. Right. No, not yet. Well, but, it, but what part would, would, it, would it violate? Well, it's going to violate all three. Yeah, it's going to violate uh, the secular purpose. It doesn't have a secular purpose, a religious purpose. The primary effect does help a religion, and there's excessive government entanglement with religion. So it's going to fail in all three parts. And this is a this is a famous school prayer was taken out. You know, prayer well, this was is the one people say. Uh, you know, ever since God was taken out of the school, yeah. this is the prayer that you know the, the the case that people say took God out of the school, right? Which um, you know. Uh, is wrong. It, it, well, <laughs> if you are a Jew or a Christian, you of course believe that God is everywhere, everywhere. And so it's bad theology. Too. It's bad theology, and the the fact that the Supreme Court couldn't possibly Supreme kick Court's them amazing. out. Supreme Court's amazing. It's bigger than God. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. Kicks them out, and, and and so that's that's a little bit of hyperbole there. But it did take teacher led prayer out of school. Right. That would be the the appropriate. And basically, what you need to know about God in schools. Is that anytime you try to use, think of the school as a stage. Anytime you try to use the stage of the school to promote a religious belief, it's going to be unconstitutional. You can't get on the, uh, the PA system during a football game and do a prayer. You can't, um, you can't do the same thing. You can't, at graduation, we're past graduation season right now, but suppose a student wants to give a prayer during a speech at graduation. Can't do it. Again, he's standing on the platform of the school giving a speech. Now, athletes want to get together in the middle of a field. Absolutely okay if, if students want to do that. And volley, uh, and what we have in Lancaster County in most places, uh, we have a baccalaureate. Absolutely. Which uh, is a religious service. And kids, they can't be required to go to that. Right. But they're free to come into a school Hear a message, religious message from a rabbi or a minister, say prayers if they want to. Um, 
but it cannot be required. Right. And that help or hinder is there too. We can't hinder – schools can't hinder religion. So you can't put up unnecessary obstacles if you have a club in school. All clubs have to be treated equal. You can't take your your religious club and require something different of it than you're requiring of your pottery club. All clubs must be created equal, so to speak. So um, God is not being taken out of schools. Basically, what it's saying is that schools cannot proselytize, schools cannot support, schools cannot be a platform for which religion, prayers, sermon, that's whatever you want to talk about. Right. It's a violation of the Establishment Clause. Right. And remember, two, two types of re- religious freedom that are protected in the Constitution is are the uh, Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. And the Establishment Clause means government can't uh, have a religion. They can't promote uh, one particular religion. And so this uh, this school prayer was seen as a violation of the Establishment Clause. If I would prevent, if the school would have some kind of policy where you can't wear, let's say, a cross. A lot of young right. girls wear a little jewelry. If they say, oh, you have to take that off because that's – well, they would violate the young students' right to free exercise. Right. It's a it's a double-edged sword. A lot of people forget that. And, yes. And they're related. If I, if I give the full force of the government – uh, to a particular religion, the history is always they use that to repress other religions. That's the history. The framers knew that, so they didn't want to do that. They, it's not that they're anti-religion. They feel religion will grow better in a in a country where a free you, market thought, right? Where you can be whatever religion you want, and the government can't tax you, prevent. Uh, hurt you in some way, uh, and in order to promote another religion. And states try to sneak stuff in. Some southern states tried to have um, meditation or or silent prayer to morning. Sorry, I can't do that. Uh, some states have tried to uh, require Bible verses to be read. Can't do that. Some states have required um, that you can't teach evolution. Sorry, you can't do that. Uh, some states say, well, you can teach evolution, but you also have to cre- teach creation science. You know, all this Trojan horse in a way trying to sneak religion past the gates uh, of a public school. And and all the court has consistently said, no, 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 you can't do that. And it, we should really do a whole podcast just on how public schools and schools in general, a lot of times on the firing line of – uh, constitutional issues, whether it comes to segregation, it comes to religion. Um, schools tend to be a testing ground for where a lot of this place happens, which I think would be a pretty good podcast for us. Let me ask you a question here. This is, I, I, there's tons of cases. Uh, I'm going to ask you one, Jeff. Right. Um, so a gentleman is um, does not believe to does his religious belief. Actually, he's not. He doesn't even belong to religion. But he has a strong held belief they should not work on the Sabbath. But he doesn't belong to any particular faith. And so he is unemployed and he has unemployment benefits. And he's offered a job, but the job requires him to work on the Sabbath. And he says, sorry, I'm not going to work on the Sabbath. That violates my religious beliefs. And the state then wants to take away his unemployment benefits because of that. And he says, no, you can't do that because requiring me to take this job is going to violate my beliefs. This is a tough one. This this case is from 1963. Okay. It's called Sherbert versus Werner. I tried to pick one that you probably wouldn't know. Oh, I, I, I've never heard of that case. All right. Well, this is a case. So here's a 
basically does the man have a right? And everyone would say, of course, you don't have to work on uh, your Sabbath, but do you can you still collect unemployment benefits because of it? This is a tough one. It's it's a very tough one, and and now we have a lot of states that are considering. Uh, well, I think Michigan just passed one. Yeah, uh, work as a predicate for getting uh, Medicaid, getting right. your medical care. So, would there be a religious problem if you were, you know? I mean, it is one of the Ten Commandments to it keep is. holy the you know, Sabbath. So, what do you think? Ah, I, you know, I don't know. I would say in the favor of the man or in favor of the state. And the state is requiring him to take this job. This is a job he has to take. Remember, because you have to have employment, you have to basically. If there's a job there, you need to take it. And the state says, no, wait a second. You had a job. You didn't take the job, so you don't get unemployment benefits anymore. Right. Because there was a job there. He's like, well, I didn't take that job because I had to work on the Sabbath. That's a tough one. Now, and this person wasn't a traditional Jew. Well, Jew or the Sabbath would be different. It'd be no, sad, no. He was not Saturday. part of any religious faith. He just had a strong re- religious I'm, feeling. I'm going to say that the, the court ruled that the state was okay in taking his benefits away. And you would be incorrect. 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 And I, okay. I pulled that out because I thought you would go that way. Just, to, I mean, you spent your whole life studying this stuff and reading this stuff. Actually, a person, he did not have to take the job. Um, it was a reasonable thing for him not to work on his Sabbath, and the state can't force him to work on the Sabbath. Because then that would violate his free exercise. It would violate his free exercise clause. Mm-hmm. And I brought that out thinking that you would go that way just to kind of demonstrate how hard this can be. To try to so when you see this stuff on the news and people are talking about this, it really is sometimes how many lawyers can you bounce on the head of a pin? Well, that's you know? in a very interesting case. That's a great pick because I think there would be some people who are fairly conservative that would say, "Make the guy take the job." Yeah, you exactly. Know? He can pray for a few hours on <laughs> Sunday and then go to work. Right. You know, like a whole lot of people do on a Sunday. Exactly. So that's that. That's an interesting uh, case. I got one for you. All right. All right. And uh, this is a later case. Witters versus Washington Services for the Blind. There was this uh, young guy and uh, named Witters, and he was going blind, and he, he wanted uh, – he, he had just graduated from high school, and he, he wanted to go uh, be a youth pastor. That was his, his goal in life. That's – that's what he wanted for his employment. Okay. So he uh, attended a religious school, and he expected uh, Washington State uh, Services for the Blind to pay for this. Uh, they said they wouldn't. We're not going to pay for you to be a youth minister. Now, remember, this is after, uh, you know, Lemon versus Kurtzman. So Lemon test would be in effect. What do you think the Supreme Court said? Do you think they said— yeah, you got to pay him because he wants to be a youth man. Okay, it's okay if Washington State says no to this because it's a violation of the Washington State Constitution as well uh, because they have no establishment religion in their constitution. Well, you know, it, it, for me, it depends on where the money is going. If the money is going to the person, then he can spend that money wherever he wants to because this money is not going from the state. Cocaine and hookers? Yes, we can only hope. <laughs> no, we understood what you mean. All right. So if he, wherever he wants to spend that money on his education, that is up to him. 
I'm going to say that he's allowed to. I, I don't think the government can step in and say, no, we're going to pay you to be a plumber. But we're not going to pay you to be a minister. That doesn't seem equal protection of the law. That seems to be violating his rights. And you know what? You uh, you got the reasoning of the court spot on. And, and again, these things are interesting to me because – uh, they really straddle conservative liberal They divides. really do, don't they? <laughs> yeah. The more because, you read about this, it really is. That- I mean, the the Supreme Court of the United States did tell Washington State to pay this guy. Right. That you can't deny him payment. And the guy who wrote the opinion was Justice Thurgood Marshall, okay. one of the iconic liberals on the court. And what they said is that there's obviously applied the limit test. So there's a secular purpose here. The guy wants a job. You're paying right. for him to be, you know, employed. There's absolutely a secular purpose. Washington should help him become a youth minister. Um, I think also when you study this, you do find out that government, you know, they're not, it's not as hostile toward religion as no, you think. No, it isn't. It really and, isn't. You know, it's not like it's always against religion. These decisions always go against. Here's the decision, again, led by Thurgood Marshall, where he says, no, <laughs> this guy wants a job. You should pay him. Right now. And, and, and that, that's the right decision. It I is. Mean, even if I, you know, regardless of what I feel about the Constitution or religion, that's the right decision. A man wants a job. He just because it, he should not be discriminated against because of the job he's, he's selecting. All right. So let's um, move to the big one. Um, because this is the Employment Division and Human Resources versus Oregon. Um, and interestingly enough, when this case was being argued, and I was watching some interviews with it uh, on it from some clerks, some people who were clerking for Supreme Court justices. And they re- this uh, – in 1990, I think the case was decided. Uh, this was the biggest case that year. But they said they didn't understand that at the time, that they did not see this as such a huge landmark case Um that it has become because not only is the case huge, but what it spawns is even bigger. Um, and this is going to lead us right back to gay cake. So do you want to go into detail on Oregon or do you want me to tackle go, this? Go one? ahead. All right. So what we have is we have two Native Americans working in a drug rehab center and they test positive for peyote. Do you want to tell people what peyote is? Well, yeah. I, uh, I actually worked on an Indian reservation, uh, the Navajo or Native American, that, although the Navajos will call themselves Indians from time. <laughs> but the, the Navajo uh, reservation, and uh, uh, even though the, uh, something called the Native American Church started with the Plains uh, Native Americans, it has spread to the Southwest, and they take uh, peyote – uh, which is grows is uh, a little cactus button on a cactus that they can get in southern Arizona and Mexico, and it's a hallucinogen, and they feel that it's it's a sacrament. Uh, you know, uh, Christians have wine; they take peyote in their services, and they have visions. Actually, uh, it causes them to stay up. There was a peyote teepee next to my trailer, <laughs> and where I worked, and you know. Uh, very late at night, you hear the the practitioners of native <laughs> of uh, the Native American Church, you know, hitting their drum and hey, 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 and uh, you know, they're not violent people or anything; they're just worshiping, and the peyote's keeping them up all night. <laughs> and we're and we're giggling a little bit, but this is this is I mean, they, this is absolutely one hundred percent legitimate. This is not right. made up stuff, right? And and in in the history of any religion. 
there are fantastic visions. I mean, the Christian right. religions, Hindu, they're fantastic visions. And they just feel peyote is something that makes that uh, the spirit world accessible to them. Okay. So these two guys, uh, they're fired. Um, now, that's not where the case originates. They go to collect unemployment benefits from the state of Oregon. And the Oregon says, sorry, because you were fired from your job because of drug use from as being drug counselors, uh, you're not going to get unemployment benefits. So they sue uh, and say, no, we should get unemployment benefits um, because you are discriminating against us. This is 1990 Unemployment Division Department of Human Resources versus Oregon. And the decision comes down um, – that I'm sorry, guys. Um, this law has a secular purpose. Uh, the primary effect is not to help or hinder religion. Uh, there's no excessive government entanglement here. You're out of luck, guys. Uh, you don't get unemployment benefits. Um, you know, you must obey the law. You don't get out of paying taxes. You don't get out of the draft. You don't get out of vaccinating your kids. You don't get out from child neglect laws. All this stuff is you must obey the law. Well, yeah, but there were earlier decisions about uh, the use of peyote in the Native American church, which and peyote is a controlled substance. Right. I forget what class it is, but it, you know it's a it's a federally controlled substance, a hallucinogen, and um, it, it did allow the earlier decisions say yes, it is constitutional. I mean, nobody was getting arrested in that teepee next to me. Right, they can use it. What the case that you're referring to was like, can we use it and and then uh, get unemployment benefits, right. right, if I'm fired? So those are actually two different questions. Well, you so, were on a reservation, too. I don't know if that plays into it. I mean, you're technically an independent country. No, I think there's uh, – there, I think case law says that you, you, can, you can be – you if you are a member of the Native American church, you can possess and use peyote – where you and I cannot. I mean, I'm assuming you're not a member of the. Name. I am not. Okay, I was. But I'm willing to try <laughs> for <laughs> for for a day or two. If you, someone you knocks on my door tomorrow, okay. I may ha- make build teepee in my backyard. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the, the, I guarantee you here that the the neighbors will be calling <laughs> the police, and you'll have to prove your membership. But that's but um, but you can possess and and have it and ingest it. This is a different thing. They're saying. Are there any consequences for that? Okay, yes. And yes, there are. I mean, the, the state can still say if you have this in your system, you know, you can be fired and, you know, you, you won't be able to collect unemployment benefits. It's not like we're firing you illegally. It didn't say they couldn't do it. That's, you know, yeah, they can, they can do the peyote. They can possess it, which would be a crime for me and you. But the consequences – that follow from that can be controlled, right? That's just, and 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 that's what they're saying. That's a, it's a very interesting case. It is now from this we get something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993. This was signed by Bill Clinton, and there's a complicated history with this because in 1997 it's going to be declared unconstitutional for states. But then states are going to pass their own versions of it, and basically what's going to happen is this: this this decision spooked uh, a lot of people. And they said, well, we need to be able to carve out exemptions here. Uh, there are uh, religious practices that need to be protected. So they passed this Religious Freedom Restoration Act for this purpose, to carve out exemptions. And they put the bar very high. 
they said that it must pass what is called strict scrutiny, that if a government, their actions or the law, and let's use the peyote thing for an example, the state must have a compelling purpose for passing the law. It must be narrowly tailored. And if it passes that, then yes, you can outlaw something. But if it doesn't, you have to allow it. Give you an example of this, a concrete example of this. A Muslim is in prison, and the prison says you can't have a beard because to have a beard, you can hide things in your beard, and everyone has to shave their beard. And he says, I'm sorry, but um, I should be allowed to have a beard. This is part of my religious belief. Um goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court looks at this. Now, they're going to say using the lemon test that the law is a secular purpose, doesn't help or hinder religion, no excessive government entanglement. Sorry, dude, you don't get to grow a beard. But you had the Religious Freedom Restoration Act sitting there. And this act says the state must have a compelling reason to keep this guy from growing a beard. And the idea that you can hide stuff in it isn't compelling enough. Guy gets a gets to grow his beard. That is a Supreme Court case that was decided. So the Freedom of Restoration, the free, the the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is born out of um, this peyote case. And this is where we get eventually to the gay cake case, right? Because if you look at the laws of a state that you have to serve everyone who comes in, well, that law has a secular purpose. Well, that law is not to help or hinder religion. Well, there's no excessive government entanglement. If you just used a lemon test, well, I'm sorry, cake guy, you're out of luck. You have to make the cake. But if you view that through the lens of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, well, here we go. Now we have another way of looking at this. State, is this a compelling is the law, do you have a compelling purpose with a very narrowly tailored law? Um, or can this person be exempt? If there's a cake, if there's a baker next door, can he just go to that baker? And this is where a lot of these cases are being decided. In these relig- Now, like I said, in 1997, this case was overturned in regards to the states, but states like Indiana and Arkansas have passed laws, and many states have passed laws, trying to protect religious freedoms. And that is, this is where things get really confusing really quick, because on the surface, it just seems like, obviously, you bake the damn cake. Um, you don't have a leg to stand on. But when you look at it through this Restoration Act, all of a sudden, maybe not. Maybe he doesn't have to bake that cake. Right, right. Yeah, and, 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 you know, this is, again, I think this is an interesting topic to me because it transcends at, or maybe it doesn't transcend. It muddles the division between conservatives and liberals. It does a whole lot, doesn't I, it? I mean, you, can, you could say let, let, if you're a traditional a, – a liberal in what a sense a lot of people would use liberal now, you would say – well, you know, why are you denying this decent couple that has the legal right to get married? Uh, why, 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 how can they possibly be denied their cake? But if you're also a liberal in the tradition that 
you should maximize individual freedom. And then, and you know, somebody says, well, you know, I make cakes or whatever I do. I do wedding photography or, I, you know, I paint pictures, wedding portraits, and I don't want to do this because I don't believe in that. Do you really want the force of government to coerce them for this principle that you think? And, and, and you know, as, as a person, I, I'll just give my, like, I don't care about same-sex marriage. That's not even an issue to me. But I don't know if I want somebody coerced who, who, for whom it is an issue, coerced in using their creative energy. So this becomes a very, very interesting and complicated question. It's not, it's not just, you know, no. cut and dried. It's not cut and dried. No, it's it not isn't. black and white. Like some of them would be. Like, for example, suppose you were a pacifist and you said, well, I don't like war. Therefore, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I don't like war. Well, I'm sorry. That's not going to pass strict scrutiny from this from the court. The court has a com- the government has a compelling reason to have you pay your taxes, and there's we can't carve an exemption. There's no other what they call least restrictive way of getting our end goal. So Thoreau and civil disobedience, his famous essay, didn't want to pay his taxes during the Mexican War because he thought, as General Grant and some other people thought, that that war was immoral. But he had to go to jail. He was was saying – and I don't think he was arguing they shouldn't be there, just that sometimes that's what you have to do to make a principle stand. Right, and if Thoreau were alive today and doing the same thing, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act would not protect him because the government would pass strict scrutiny because the question would be what's your compelling reason to make him pay taxes to fund the government? Is there any other way that we can get this done besides the way you're doing it? No. Right. Okay, I'm sorry. The government the government wins there, but the cake thing really is this nebulous sort of gray area. And is it is it Rosa Parks on the, you know, on the bus not going to not giving up her seat? I don't think this is a Rosa Parks case, but it is interesting because it also talks into what is who is federally protected. I did write down uh, all the classes of people who are federally protected, all right? You are federally protected because you've a race, color, Religion, creed, national origin, sex, age, physical or mental disabilities, veteran status, your genetic information, or your citizenship. What you'll notice there is that being gay, being a lesbian, being transgendered is not a federally protected class. In some states, they are protected. In some states, they are not protected. So because of that, again, so if you're if you're in a state that isn't protected, the bar even falls lower than strict scrutiny. It becomes an intermediate scrutiny or basically rational basis. And I don't want to get into all that because this gets into a bunch of mumbo jumbo that clouds everything up. But then the bar goes even lower that, yes, they can deny you service because you're not a protected class. Right. So I, I don't know. I, we're, we and, and you have to be terribly careful f- f- with, with this because uh, if you look at decisions – uh, and beliefs about segregation of the races, uh, many people base them on their religion. I mean, in the 1962 and the Loving versus uh, Virginia, Virginia cases, which uh, Virginia, like a lot of other states, had laws against miscegenation or uh, race mixing. They wouldn't allow white and black people to get married because they didn't want mixed-race kids. Um, 
the the actual uh, appellate judge in the Virginia case who upholds the original decision to not allow uh, Loving to get married to his wife uh, and to invalidate uh, that type of marriage, he bases it on religion. He says, well, God created different races in different places. <laughs> and, you know, you've got to be extremely careful with this. And and, and and in Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court basically said, well, that's, that's bull crap, the 14th Amendment. Right. Races, know, are, races are protected. Yeah, class. and you're denying equal protection to, to these people. But are you denying equal protection uh, to people by forcing somebody who doesn't want to do something Creativity, you know, creatively uh, uh, to do it, or are you protecting that person's free exercise of religion? And if you're honest about that question, it's a very fine line. It is. We're going to end this podcast here with predictions. Um, the 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 gay cake case did not um, answer the big question, and the big question is: Can this baker deny? this specific service to this homosexual couple. Now, let's recap this a little bit. Remember what this baker is saying. Uh, this gay couple came in, said, we want you to make a wedding cake. He says, I'm sorry. Uh, this is a gay marriage is against my religious beliefs. You can buy anything you want to in this store, pre-made. But for me to actually sit down and make this big, giant wedding cake, I feel that that is sort of my speech that is sort of me speaking at your wedding, and I feel uncomfortable with that, and I'm not going to do that. So this is a very narrow decision, Jeff, either way. But when it eventually gets back to the courts, whenever it does, what do you think the decision will be? And I know I'm going to pin you on this because you have a way of talking around these things and never answering the damn question. You talk for five minutes and just sort of ignore my question. So um, does he have to make the cake? With if it goes to the Supreme Court, yes, as it's currently. Yeah, I'm not asking you what constituted. You, I'm not asking you what your personal opinion right. is. You can give that if you want. Right. I'm asking you what you think the court will say. I think the court will say it is okay for him uh, to not to not bake that cake, not bake the new cake. Okay. All right. Now I don't know if that's going to be an earth-shattering decision. Right. It's not uh, Rosa Parks here. Right. Uh, but I think. I think that's what they're going to decide. Montgomery cake boycott. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, let me just add something to here. We get crazy. You know, obviously we're very polarized. I think we're going to deal with that in our next podcast. Yes. And, you know, you think about this particular case and it's like, are there really people screaming on one side? you got to bake that damn cake. <laughs> you, you know, you homophobic <laughs> You know, baker person, you've got to do that. And are there really people doing that? And, and, and like maybe there are, you know. And are there really people on the other side saying, "Well, the nerve of those people to come into a uh, a bakery, the confectionery riots of eighteen, <laughs> and and want to and want a, a cake baked for their perfectly what is now legal. their perfectly legal wedding? Nobody here is being crazy. Neither one of those." Parties to me are being crazy, and sometimes this drives uh, this drives me nuts. Is our polarization over that? Can a reasonable person understand both sides of that argument? Right. I think that's part of our po- that's part of the reason why we do this podcast. Well, I think we're, I'm going to end it there because I think that's a great. I agree with you, Jeff. I think that's exactly what the court's going to come down with. I think they're going to carve out this exemption. 
Um, just let you know, next week, uh, we're going to sit down with Dr. Terry Madonna, and we are going to attempt to answer the question, what the hell happened in 2016? How did we get so divided? How did Donald Trump become the nominee for the Republicans? And how did Bernie Sanders almost become the nominee for the Democrats? And and how come the polls were missed at all? Right. And Ter- in case you don't know Terry Madonna, Terry Madonna, um, not to just give you a little background, he is a professor over at Franklin and Marshall University. He is a he is an expert in Pennsylvania politics and polling. So we're going to sit down with him. We're going to have some great questions for him. So uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you can always ask us any questions you would like. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter. You can catch us on Facebook. Uh, you can email us at historypoliticsandbeer at gmail. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.